0: why does proximity so often provoke rivalry? Is it our penchant for comparison, the way nearness gives us a view of the things we lack? Is this why siblings find it easy to slip into envy? Is it why, in order to bring us close to one another, God must make us new? This is a story about dreams and disappointment. About secrets and competition and the way we measure worth but mostly it's the story of a God who roots for us and does not forget us when we're struggling a God who comes near to help I'm Justin Gerhardt welcome to Holy Ghost Stories outskirts of Haran. A young woman, a beautiful young woman, fourteen, maybe fifteen years old, shields her eyes from the sun overhead, squinting into the distance toward the well. One, two, three flocks. The sheep are motionless, lying on the ground, resting in the heat, while their shepherds share gossip, catch up, steal a quick nap. When the fourth flock arrives, they'll remove the covering stone and draw water for their livestock. Good of them to wait for her. Rachel walks resolutely toward the watering hole, staff in hand, woolen disciples following alongside and behind. Glancing over her shoulder, she calls encouragement to the stragglers, smiles as the littlest ones bleed at her, trotting to keep up. Even as they near the well, Rachel scans the horizon for predators, making sure her sheep are safe. This is her flock. Well, it's her father, Lots? but she loves these animals. And until she bears children, what a wonderful day that will be. These are the closest things to kids she's got. Good. No wolves, no lions. Not likely this time of day anyway, but better safe than... Wait, who is that? A young man Rachel doesn't recognize is talking to the shepherds. She approaches with her flock and sees one of the shepherds point to her as he says something to the stranger. Suddenly, the young man's eyes light up and he jogs over to the well. What is he doing? He wraps his arms around the stone disc and begins pulling. That's a job for two or three of them, Rachel muses, perhaps shaking her head at this eager newcomer. But to her surprise, the stone gives way. Straining the stranger brings it to rest on the ground and looks up smiling to her as if to say I did that for you Who is this? He's waving her over now her and her sheep When Rachel obliges the stranger begins drawing water and filling the troughs watering her animals Now he's running up to her. He's kissing her on the cheek in an earnest greeting are those tears. Yes. He's crying I am a relative of your father, a son of his sister, Rebecca, he says. My name is Jacob. What Rachel doesn't know is that it's been a difficult few weeks for Jacob. At the behest of his mother, he deceived his father into giving him the birthright and blessing due his older twin. Narrowly escaping his brother's wrath, Jacob's been on the road for weeks. He's journeyed over 500 miles on foot and alone, a dangerous way to travel. Along the way, he had an unforgettable encounter with Yahweh, the God of his father Isaac and grandfather Abraham. He's physically and emotionally spent. Oh, and the reason Jacob is in Haran? Isaac told him to come here and to find a wife among his uncle Laban's daughters. So as Jacob stumbles finally into this moment and suddenly finds himself face to face with exactly who he'd been hoping, praying to find, someone from his uncle's house, Jacob is primed for emotion. He's arrived at long last. And look, by Yahweh, it's a daughter of Laban. And she's stunning. Her face, her all of her is exquisite. And the way she handles those sheep, she's so capable, strong, alive. Could she be his? It's all too much for Jacob. The sorrow, the shame, the stress, the fear, the exhaustion, and now this possibility. He made it and he found them and Look at her! Tears are all Jacob can muster for a few moments. Rachel, meanwhile, is shocked. She's heard of her Aunt Rebecca, of course, but her father parted ways with his sister decades ago. There's been no contact from that side of the family for, what did her father say? Close to 100 years. And now, here is Rebecca's son. Rachel immediately runs off to find Laban, leaving Jacob at the well wiping his eyes. Leah can scarcely believe the news. Rebecca's son is here, in Haran, and he's here to marry one of you, Laban shouts happily perhaps as he bounds out the door to meet Jacob. One of us. It must be me. I'm the oldest, I'm... What is he like? Giddy with excitement, Leah's younger sister tells her all about the well and the stone and the stranger from the south who turned out to be their kinsman. Before long, Laban bursts in with Jacob, calling for Leah, perhaps, to bring wine, calling a servant to wash his nephew's feet, calling for a feast to celebrate this reunion. If a drink is poured, Laban raises a glass to his nephew and denounces cheerfully, You are my own flesh and blood! Leah smiles, nodding, her beautiful diaphanous eyes lingering on Jacob perhaps as they toast, hoping to catch his gaze. But Jacob doesn't notice her. His attention seems fixed on Rachel. A month passes. Leah's noticed Jacob is a hard worker. And a good cook, as it happens. She's swapped some recipes with him, perhaps. In fact, Jacob's spent a fair amount of time among the tents, as opposed to staying all day every day out in the fields, not what most men would choose. Perhaps he's found a reason to be here. Perhaps she's the reason. His preference certainly gives her a leg up on her sister, the shepherd. Rachel's had a good month. Jacob's probably offered more than once to water her sheep again. Did you see me move that stone? It's an inside joke at this point, perhaps. Oh, Dad, don't try to lift that piece of bread by yourself, not when Jacob's here. And certainly, Rachel's noticed that Jacob has spent a fair amount of time out in the fields with her. More than she'd imagine, given what he said about his preference for more indoorsy pursuits. Perhaps he's found a reason to be out here. Perhaps... She's the reason. Certainly gives her a leg up on her sister and those delicate eyes of hers. Laban is pleased as the weeks pass. Finally, a young man to pitch in around the place. It would be nice to have Jacob around permanently. Of course, he'll have to spin it the right way. I've been thinking. Just because you're a relative of mine, Laban says to Jacob one day, should you work for nothing? Laban claps his nephew on the shoulder. Tell me what your wages should be. It's brilliant, really. Laban makes it sound as though he simply wants to make sure Jacob gets paid for his work, while in actual fact, the young man is effectively demoted from family to employee. Jacob, though, has also been thinking. The exchange goes something like this. Uncle, Jacob says, how about instead of wages, we talk bride price? Laban's eyes narrow, his lips pursing in thought, the involuntary posture of negotiation. Go on, he says. Jacob continues, I will work for you, pause for effect, for seven years, in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Rachel. Laban considers the offer. Seven years is a lot of work. This is a generous offer, but Jacob wants Rachel. According to custom, Leah needs to be married first. Of course, she'd have time, seven years to be chosen and wed, but what if that didn't happen? Suddenly, a thought enters Laban's mind, a dark thought that will impact generations to come. He could always, couldn't he? What would Jacob do? He couldn't do a thing. He'd have no choice but to... I suppose, says Laban, feigning reluctance, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Very well. You stay here with me. Seven years from today, we'll have a wedding. How does Rachel find out? Probably, Laban tells her Jacob has proposed marriage she cannot be surprised Jacob is obviously in love with her children this means children seven years can't come soon enough but maybe Jacob beats Laban to it and tells Rachel himself if she balks at the bride price he counters surely seven years is nothing I'd work twice that if it meant getting to be with you and what about Leah who tells her Is it Laban sheepishly explaining that he's accepted a proposal for his youngest daughter's hand in marriage before his oldest is wed? Does he assure her that all is well? I have a plan. Or is it Rachel who tells Leah, beaming, dreaming aloud of holding a little boy that has her nose and Jacob's chin, oblivious as to the tears forming in the corners of Leah's eyes? Or worse, keenly aware of Leah's chagrin? Seven years pass. 84 months of Rachel imagining and reimagining the children Jacob will give her. 364 weeks of Leah wishing Jacob would notice and desire her and change his mind perhaps. 2,555 days of Jacob working for his uncle to marry his love. But in spite of the sun on his neck, the soreness of his back and the calluses on his hands, The time races for Jacob. Another inside joke with Rachel, perhaps. You know, it's been a good three days, but I don't know if I can do... What's that? It's been two and a half years? How? Oh, he points to her face. That's how. Finally, the price is paid. Give me my wife, Jacob says to Laban. My time is completed, and I want to make love to her. Laban's eyes narrow. Very well. Time for a wedding, he says, and invites their neighbors to a feast. When does Laban tell Leah about the plan? Does he wait until the night of the wedding, shocking her with his instructions? Or has he told her already, days, months, years ago? Has Leah known all along, hiding this enormous secret from her younger sister, biding her time as Rachel and Jacob exchanged playful glances all these years, taking comfort in her anticipation of the coming hustle? On the wedding day, does Leah join in on Rachel's beauty treatments, just for fun? Does Rachel struggle to be perfectly gracious? Of course I don't mind. This will be good practice for if, I mean when, you get married. The feast is quite an event. Friends and neighbors, music and dancing, food and drink. That last element, likely, is key to Laban's plan. If Jacob tries to beg off yet another round, his uncle insists, filling and refilling his cup again and again. Finally, it's time for the wedding to give way to the marriage. The sun has set, the tent has been prepared, and Jacob is ready to finally be with his bride. Is it only now that Rachel is told about the plan? As she moves toward the tent to await Jacob, bejeweled and veiled, does her father grab her by the wrist? Your sister is there already. As she shakes her head in disbelief, tears flooding, does she beg Laban to reconsider? Does she run to the tent and implore Leah not to go through with it? You don't have to do this. You can refuse. Don't give yourself to him, please. He'll hate you forever. I will hate you forever. If Rachel appeals to her sister or to her father, she does so without success. Full of wine, Jacob visits his wedding tent, makes love to his veiled bride and falls asleep. As the first rays of sunlight sneak in through the seams in the tent, Leah awakens, perhaps yawns, and rolls over to find Jacob sleeping peacefully beside her. Maybe she watches his chest rise and fall, strokes his smooth arm with her fingers, skin like still water. This is right. He'll understand. He will love me now. But when Jacob stretches and opens his eyes, he practically screams, Leah? Rachel, somewhere in the camp, weeps as the sun rises, surely mourning the life that came so close and has now slipped through her fingers. Her teenage years are gone. Jacob has been stolen by her sister. She has no husband. Rachel touches her belly, perhaps. New tears. She might have been pregnant today. Jacob storms through the camp, barely dressed. Laban! Where is Laban? You! What have you done? Jacob growls. What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? "'Why have you deceived me?' Surely Leah ran from the tent after Jacob and is listening at the door, panicked. Surely Rachel ran when she heard the commotion and stands at the door too, death in her eyes as she glares at Leah, her heart in her throat as she listens to Jacob explode. If Laban flinched when the enraged Jacob burst into his tent, he regains his composure quickly, his eyes narrow, his lips purse in thought, feigned consideration.' This is something Laban anticipated, all part of the plan. It is not our custom here, he tells Jacob in a derogatory, didactic tone, to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Jacob seethes. The sisters overhear their father say, Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also, in return for another seven years of work. Leah and Rachel stumble out of the way as Jacob charges from the tent. If they glance at one another, it is not without hatred. Jacob and Leah's bridal week passes tensely. Leah, no doubt, does her best to smooth things over, to cement their relationship in these first several days, to capture Jacob's gaze while he's undistracted. Rachel, full of renewed, if diluted, hope, counts the days until she can be with him. At the end of the week, Laban gives Rachel to Jacob to be his wife, his other wife. This triangle has very sharp edges. The next seven years are eventful. Leah watches helplessly as her husband makes no efforts to conceal his preference for her sister. The way Jacob touches Rachel as he walks by, his eyes when he looks at her, they're endless little jokes. It feels so lonely. Strangely, neither Leah nor her sister have had any children. Perhaps, perhaps if she had a child, a son, that would do it, that would fix everything. Draw Jacob's eye to her. Show him that he loved her, Leah, his first wife, his real wife. Yahweh watches Leah. Whatever she feels, whatever hurt or hopelessness or envy, he sees it all. This family. Sarah's envy of Hagar and Ishmael. Isaac withholding love from one of his sons while favoring the other. And now Jacob, heir to this fortune of dysfunction, swindled into a double marriage, spurning Leah. He's not just trapped with her, she's trapped with him. What a mess. They are an unhealthy clan. But they are the world. The world is them. Sin metastasized after Eden, its tentacles reaching from person to person across time. There is no localized treatment that will do here. The treatment must be administered slowly, surely, over generations. But also Yahweh sees his daughter, Leah, bears witness to her loneliness watches her dawning awareness of her barren womb, and comes near to help. I'm pregnant, Leah cries, and she calls this firstborn child Reuben. The name means, see, a son, which in Hebrew sounds a lot like he has seen my misery. Surely, Leah thinks to herself, my husband will love me now. But he doesn't. When Leah becomes pregnant again, she names her second son, Simeon, one who hears. After Yahweh, she'll tell people, who heard that I am not loved and gave me this child too. In short order, Leah finds herself pregnant with a third child. Jacob may not prefer her, but he is at least fulfilling his obligation as a husband. Levi, she names him, attached because now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. But nothing changes. Jacob treats her like an obligation. And Rachel, well, Rachel cannot stand Leah's children, her constant pregnancy. At first, the envy is nice for Leah. She finally has something Rachel doesn't. Soon, though, the enjoyment sours and resentment pollutes the camp making the very air heavy, hard to breathe. A fourth child comes to Leah, and with his arrival, a seeming shift. She names him Judah, praise. This time, she says, resolutely turning her gaze from her jealous sister and her emotionally unavailable husband, I will praise Yahweh. Rachel cannot believe her misfortune. First, her father steals her fiance and gives him to her sister. Then, when she can join the marriage who wants to join her sister's marriage, she cannot seem to get pregnant. The thing she's wanted since since she started leading those sheep around as a girl. And to add insult to injury, Leah is pregnant all the time. Rachel can't find a single place in the camp where she doesn't have to listen to the cries of Leah's children. Their children. Envy eats at Rachel like a parasite, feasting, growing, consuming. She barely notices Jacob's affection anymore. She is blind to all but absence. Eventually, Rachel breaks. Give me children or I will die! She looks at Jacob with wild eyes, yells about her needs, about his failings, about the injustice of his refusal to give her what she's always wanted. But Jacob is not having it. Am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Oh, God is keeping me from having children. And why would that be? Because I'm so unworthy compared to Leah? What did she do to deserve sons? What is wrong with my womb? Why is my body broken? If at this point Rachel sees the shadow of her maidservant Bilhah walk by, her eyes suddenly brighten. Bilhah! Rachel runs and grabs the woman by the wrist, pulling her over to Jacob. Here, Rachel shoves Bilhah in Jacob's direction. Here is Bilhah, my servant. Sleep with her so that she can bear children for me. I'll build a family through her. Jacob looks at Bilhah. Bilhah looks at Rachel. Jacob looks at Rachel. Do it. Fine. Nine months or so later, Bilhah gives birth to Rachel's child. Dan, Rachel names him, he has vindicated, because God has vindicated me. He has listened to my plea and given me a son. The plan works so well, in fact, that Rachel enlists Bilhah again. Another son, Naphtali, my struggle, because I have had a great struggle with my sister, and I have won. But the war continues when Leah, who cannot seem to get pregnant again, conscripts her servant, Zilpah. Perhaps Leah has not, in fact, become as content as Yahweh would have hoped. One son, Gad, troop, and another, Asher, happy. Eight sons, each born into conflict, raised in a family where affection can feel fickle, where insecurity whispers from the shadows, where there rages a continual search for something beyond Yahweh's all-sufficient love. This is the soil from which a nation will grow. It will be a sickly, misshapen tree. And Yahweh will love and tend it anyway. Leah smiles. What do you have, Reuben? For me? Reuben, seven years old or so, proudly hands some flowers up to his mother. Violet flowers shaped like bells, dark green, wrinkled leaves rising from a thick, almost humanoid root, yellowish berries. Uh, mandrakes for mommy? Why, thank you. Either this is a serendipity or Reuben has been trained to spot a mandrake plant when he's out in the fields. They're a famous fertility aid, and in this family, any help in that department is coveted. Leah begins making plans for the next time she and Jacob are together. She's not scheduled for any night soon. As the favorite, her sister is the default nightly companion and the keeper of the schedule. No matter, Leah can be patient. But before Leah can avail herself of this windfall, Rachel sees the plants. Please, she says to her sister, eyeing the roots and berries with great interest, give me some of your son's mandrakes. She can't be serious. Wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take my son's mandrakes too? But Rachel is resolute. Very well, she replies. He can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So that's the choice. A guaranteed evening with Jacob, or the possibility of another child with Jacob sometime in the future. Jacob, the one who dangled hot stew before his brother to tempt him into foregoing the birthright, becomes the bait dangled by one sibling before another. This family. Fine, Leah concedes, hands over the mandrakes, and prepares to meet Jacob when he comes in from the fields. You have to sleep with me, she tells him that evening. I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. If it's come to this, so be it. Rachel does not see Jacob tonight. And in a few weeks, Leah is grinning. Pregnant. Another son. Issachar. Reward. God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband. Yahweh... How does Yahweh react to this declaration? Rachel cannot believe it. Again? How many babies can that woman... Another son from Leah... A daughter, too, eventually. And still, Rachel has not given birth to a single child of her own. Does Rachel pray? Surely she does. To Yahweh, of course. Perhaps, too, to Laban's household gods. They have a ways to go, this family. And why does she pray? Is it because she's still consumed with this sibling rivalry? because she wants a biological son like Leah has, a child her sister can't say doesn't count? Or is it, most of it at least, more pure than that? Does Rachel dream of breastfeeding a baby of her own, feeling that wonder and basking in that bond? Does she beg Yahweh to give her a little boy who has her nose and Jacob's chin? Whatever it is, Whatever the condition of Rachel's heart, whether pure or tainted or checkered, Yahweh listens, sees his daughter Rachel, bears witness to her sorrow, mourns her years-long awareness of her barren womb, and comes near to help. I'm pregnant, Laban's youngest daughter cries. Rachel weeps in joy. Jacob breathes an enormous sigh of relief, surely. And Leah, well, no one knows how Leah reacts to this news. Maybe she doubles down on the slights, the scrambling for advantage, the posture of rivalry that's become endemic in this family. But maybe she doesn't. Those who come after Leah, who read her story, will feel they have reason to assume the worst, They will have the chance to caricature and slander people like Leah and Rachel in stories like this, using them as hermeneutic or pedagogic fodder, or to root for them, treating them with love, even in their absence. Many will do the former, but perhaps some will choose the latter. Bless them for doing so. They will have chosen the path of Yahweh. Decades from now, Jacob will bury one of his wives, and then the other. Rachel, who finally bore a son, a son she'd waited her whole life to have, a son with that chin and that nose, a child Jacob would love so deeply, she would name that baby Joseph, which means, may he add, even as she held that gift, Rachel hoped Yahweh would add to her another little boy. And he does. But Rachel will not live to meet this second-born son of hers, Jacob's youngest, Benjamin. She will die in childbirth, and Jacob will weep for her. He will bury her somewhere near what will eventually be called Jerusalem, in the land allotted to the tribe of Benjamin. Leah Leah will precede Jacob in death as well. The woman who wanted so badly to be loved by her husband, who found herself always somehow on the outside of a family she helped to create, will be buried by Jacob in the cave of Machpelah. He will lay her alongside Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, and eventually Jacob will join her there. Perhaps Leah grew on him after all. The children who come from Jacob and Leah and Rachel will also struggle to get along. Their descendants will swerve in and out of unity as the years pass. They will continue to be an unhealthy clan. This family. But through it all, Yahweh will remember them. He will see them. He will tend to their wounds, their self-inflicted injuries, administering treatment slowly, surely, over generations. And one day, in a way the world could never have imagined, he will come near to help. Thanks so much for listening. I hope the forebear, the bait, and the switch blessed you. If so, take a sec to text the link to a friend or share this episode on Instagram. You guys are so great about doing that, and it's working. You are spreading the word about Holy Ghost Stories, and this podcast is finding its way into cars and homes and hearts around the world. Thank you. And thanks especially to the and Tours. Stephanie, Vincenta, Cheyenne, Boo, Helen, Elizabeth, Scott and Susan, Rick, Mindy, Maddie, April, Eric and Jody, John, Ricky, Brandy, Kimmy, Steve, Patrick, Liz, Stevens, Terry, Jack, Nelwyn, Julie, Jamie, Stephen, Bill and Trina, Jessica, Ken, Alyssa, Sloan, and Jamie. You guys are like the mandrakes to my... Okay, maybe that analogy doesn't work. You know what I mean. You guys are great. Oh, and if you don't already subscribe to the latest, it's a fantastic email I send out every other week with juicy tidbits about each episode, cool stuff I've come across, and stories from my family's global wanderings. We're living in South Africa right now, and we're about to head out on a 12-hour road trip adventure to celebrate Easter with people we've never met. Sign up for the latest, and I'll tell you how it went. You can find it at holyghoststories.org. Till next time. Thank you.